Coming up next, the bookening reads Midnight's Children. Everybody, welcome to the book. My name is Nathan Roberts, and I am your humble and obedient host. Let's mix it up today. Let's meet Jacob Mensel first, the pastor <laughs> who's well, a master why, of Nathan? reading. <laughs> why, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, it may be that what people won't hear is the awkward attempt at an aborted interview that we just did that fell into catastrophic pieces due to your lack of. Yeah of engagement. I know. It might have included juggling and <laughs> crossbreeding cats and dogs. It might have. People will never know. People will never know. Because and and, and whose fault is that? Mine. Oh, his, his name starts with B. It continues with R. And then there's various other letters. And when you put them all together, it spells Brandon. Oh man. Brandon. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not meeting Brandon. We're meeting Pastor Jacob Menzel. He's a great guy. He engages in conversations. You say something, he responds to you. He makes eye contact sometimes. Only drools every five minutes. He's a great guy. Hey, Jake. Oh, hi, Nathan. I'm just kidding. Jake doesn't make eye contact. <laughs> no, Jake, of course you make eye contact. Uh, Jake's got a fine pair of specs these days. He's wearing the eggshell specs. Or no, not the eggshell. Clamshell. What are they called? The uh, tortoise, tortoise shell. Tortoise shell. Shell yeah. specs. I, tortoise shell, a, a kind of type of speck that I enjoy. Yeah. He also goes to the gym, so he's sporting a nice pair of pecs yeah. to go with those specs. <laughs> yep. Also tortoise shell, Yeah, actually. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> it's very strange. I want to have those looked at. <laughs> and by tortoise shell, we I, literally I mean he has a shell. I my shirt with tortoise shells in <laughs> yeah. to augment my appearance. So. Oh, I get it now. You yeah. know, that almost sounds magically realistic, like the book we're about to talk about, Midnight's Children. Almost. Yeah, I'm not almost. sure you understand what magical realism <laughs> is, Nathan. It means you just stuff Were your shirt you with turtles. at all to Brandon? <laughs> Jake, I was not. <laughs> uh, no one does. It's okay. I, no. I tuned him out after about 30 seconds. <laughs> no, it was a good It was a good context with Brandon. Context with Brandon. Yeah. And then last week, we told a bunch of stories about Brandon something, PhD, getting his PhD. Something. He's not going to be an ABD no more. That's and right. we told some stories about me getting engaged, and it kind of turned into a whole thing. And now this week, we're finally going to talk about the book, and we've got Pastor Jacob Menzel here. Jake, why don't you introduce the other guy that's joining us who has not spoken yet or been a part of things at all? <clears throat> um, who, would, who would that be? Well, I'll give you a hint. Think fat. <laughs> think, <laughs> think fat. <Yeah. laughs> Nathan, you've already introduced yourself. <laughs> oh! oh. oh. Think witty. <laughs> could, it, could it be Ghost Brandon? Ooh. <laughs> could it be? Could, could it be? There's a ghost in this book. Is it the ghost of Peter Cottontail or whatever that guy's name, Peter Acosta? Yeah. No, it's the ghost of Brandon. It's Brandon. He's, he's what, Jake? The scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. He used to be the ABD. Apparently, I used to be the scholar the who's the baller of books. Yes, that's right. I, I meant to get to that. Yes. Someone complained to me recently, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, that you started out as the scholar of baller books. Nope, false. You started out as the scholar who's a baller of books, and you became the scholar who's a baller of reading. I have no memory of you ever being the scholar who's a baller of books, although it 
kind of probably makes would have di- tried to differentiate it from the pastures of master of reading and then yeah sometimes my sticks get a little bit used. murky like, i have no memory of it changing myself so you would think of yourself as always having been the scholar who's a baller of reading yeah and i think it's been that way for a long time once you were the baller of anything you What's, weren't always a baller yeah yeah i don't know when this changed nathan we've already done context in our first episode then we did baggage in our third episode wow in our second episode now this episode we are going to discuss the book midnight's children stands to reason <laughs> it does stand to reason doesn't it it does you kind of work it all out in your brain and what do you it, come to but stands. The, the conclusion that we will be discussing midnight's children what do you guys think about the old the center does hold the center does hold what beast slouches towards bethlehem to be born it's brandon <laughs> Let's. I don't know what those mean, uh, Brandon. <laughs> you would never slouch towards Bethlehem. Try to crawl and pant my whole way there. No, Brandon. You'd Is that what you wanted to say? You huh? jauntily walk towards Bethlehem. That's what you do. Oh, okay. Thanks, Nate. The beast who jauntily walks towards Bethlehem. The center can hold. Yep. Because it's stuffed with Twinkies. <laughs> the center is Brandon's stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Nathan, I love you. I am a card. I am a card. What can I say? All right, guys, let's talk about Midnight's Children. What did you guys think about old Midnight's Children? Now, we should probably admit something in a sort of metatextual sense, which is, I think we may have touched on this in the last episode, but none of us have read Midnight's Children for a long time. Yes. Yeah, it's been some months. Yes, longer than that in some of our cases. And some of us may have forgotten our book. Really? Well, I haven't read it since the incident that I oh, talked, talked about. about last time. I did not, in fact, reread it for the, but I did kind of study up on it. Why didn't you reread it, Nathan? I was busy. Did you not like the book? Uh, we'll talk about that. No, I loved it. It's a great book. Yeah. But it's been about four months or so since I've read it. And Jake, why didn't, why aren't you more fresh on this? Our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful patrons. Mm-hmm hit that $750 mark. They sure did. And we had to engage the Narnia protocol. We did have to engage the <laughs> Narnia. Destroy, destroy, destroy. <laughs> Tapping oh into my inner radio head there. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and so this just got derailed. Mm-hmm. And then what we decided is, you know, Shakespeare month is still Shakespeare month. Right. October is still October. So instead of pushing everything back and pushing our scary stories back Mm -hmm. into November where they'd make no sense and doing Shakespeare around Halloween or whatever, we decided we'll just bounce Midnight's Children all the way back to the end. And so here we are. So here we are. And, you know, I thought it'd be fun to see what we remember. And Brandon, when's the last time you read Midnight's Children? A few months ago. But you've read it several times. This would be probably my fifth or sixth time. Your fifth or sixth time. Yep. Well, Brandon, maybe I'll start by asking you a question about this novel yeah. to get the discussion going. Your fifth or sixth time, eh? Yeah. What is it that speaks to you so much about Midnight's Children that it's worth reading five or six times? Nathan, I thought a lot about this. Mm. One of those times I had to because it was in a class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another of those times I had to because it was for the bookening. Okay. <laughs> so really, so only three is, of those times. What is it that made you, of your own free will, read this book three times? <laughs> As everyone famously knows, and as my students actually corrected me the other day, this was it was weird to be corrected on your own timeline. I told them that War and Peace meant a lot to me mm-hmm. because it's what got me into serious literature. Then mm-hmm. one student rose their hands up in the air and said, Mr. Chastine, I thought it was David Copperfield that got you into serious literature. 
So I had to distinguish what I meant. But yeah. Well, you know, there's serious literature and then there's Charles Dickens. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's actually kind of what I said. But because my mentality towards Dickens, I've grown up a bit towards Dickens. Mm-hmm. All right. I still love Dickens, but he's more, I realize the place of nostalgia he has for me. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll probably be talking a lot about Brandon's coming to terms with things probably in this episode and also in our War and Peace episodes coming up. Yeah. Because guess what? We've revisited that well and that well has only grown man better. Yeah. To lose the metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to say deeper, deeper? No. (laughs) You have to lower the bucket even more to get anything. (laughs) No, the bucket's like shallow. Like there's more water in the well. It's become, yeah, it's become more. It's like a geyser. It's like a geyser. That's right. The bucket. Yeah, it's a shallow bucket. There's a hole in that bucket, dear Nathan, dear Nathan. (laughs) We'll mend it, dear Brandon, dear Brandon. thanks. Um, With what, Nathan? uh, With a a straw. Tape? Straw? What is... But where are we going to get the straw, Nathan? From the straw? With a... But how are we going to cut it? Uh, with scissors. scissors. But the scissors are dull, Nathan. We'll sharpen them. Yeah. How am I going to sharpen with it? With a stone. Or, but the stone's dry. We'll wet it. But how am I going to wet it? With water. But where am I going to get the water? A hose. In, in, in a bucket. But there's a hole in the bucket. Oh, oh no. Man. Turtles all the way down. <laughs> Hoisted on your own petard. Somewhere there's a listener out there who's like, I never got that song because I never paid attention yeah. all the way through. Well, it's now you know. Wrong. Now you know. Who is this listener? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the book anyway. They're, they're too busy like reading T.S. Eliot to, yeah. Yeah. to study the nuances of folk poetry, mm. Nathan. Okay, we, we attracted a sophisticated listener. We do attract you? a sophisticated listener. We do. His name is... Bob. Mar- Mark. Mark. <laughs> Bob Mark. Bob Mark. Yeah. You guys know Bob Mark. That guy's a real elitist. <laughs> well, as we said before, you know, in our last episode, there's a place for elitism. And there sure is. There's a place for you, Bob Mark. I have thoughts about that. About elitism. Yeah. But we're not going to say I'm here. No, no, no. <laughs> I, have voiced my, I have voiced my opinions yeah. on our personal Slack conversations yeah. that- don't make it onto the air. Some plebes might listen and get offended if you said your opinion. Um, but anyway, so why does Midnight's Children appeal to me? Why does it? Dickens has something to do with this. Mm. Because I felt when I read Midnight's Children, to be honest, I don't remember why. I want to say it was because... Oh, I think I do remember now. Um, <laughs> Doesn't take long. And I think I mentioned this on the last episode. We had a... Um, student who lived with us. What do they call them? Foreign, exchange. A foreign, foreign exchange student. Foreign exchange student. Yeah. But it wasn't quite, they were students who would come to the university and our church would take care of them and, and assign them to a family. We were host families for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she came and she would stay with us. She was an Indian um, student in the English department and she recommended Midnight's Children to me. And I had read a bunch of Dickens at the time and there was something about Salman Rushdie, that magic, ma- the magical realism, but also the storytelling quality to it, the weirdness of the story, but also the intelligence of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it is a very intelligent story. You can feel the intelligence of the storyteller the whole way through, mm-hmm. but also just how enthusiastic he is about this story. Mm-hmm. There's energy in every single sentence of this story. And it just, it blew me away. I loved it. How it, old was Rushdie when he wrote this? He would have been in his um, early 30s. Okay, yeah. Yep. He had started writing this when he was in his late 20s, but it took about seven years to get it published. It feels like a, a younger man's Yeah, book. and he says that himself. He says that this is a young man's work and he doesn't think he would ever write this again but that it obviously has a significant place in literary history. Mm-hmm. Of all the books from the 20th century that are going to survive, Midnight's Children and Remains of the Day definitely have a good running chance at it. 
And so you've read two of them. Yeah, this you guys. Year, listener. Thanks to us, you have yeah. read two of them. You're welcome. You are welcome. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Blood Meridian, probably, which you may not have read. Maybe you did. <laughs> or maybe you did, and now you're scarred for life. Yeah. And you don't listen to the bookending anymore because you're in a mental institution. <laughs> but it's possible. Pig. Conceivable. But yeah, I think that's, so I think that connection to Dickens, but also being a wholly, completely different world than Dickens. Mm-hmm. There also was some, uh, especially for the for me as a young man, just opening up to a world that I just had never experienced before. For me, the Indian, Indian culture was different mm-hmm. in other, in a way that I, it never interested me. But Salman Rushdie made it very interesting. It, it, well, I never liked the Arabian tales or anything like that. Aladdin, I liked Aladdin okay. And I know that's not the same world. But all that world, that anything east of Europe always mm-hmm. seemed like something I wasn't interested in. Hmm. Well, what's interesting about the book is it really does give you that vibe that trying to step back into something like Thousand and One Nights mm-hmm. can give you. It's not the same vibe in and of itself, but... But it's exotic and it's different. Yeah, it's got that same kind of Eastern exoticism to it that mm-hmm. you well, and it's find compelling. I think part of what I find, I mean, take this for what it's worth. Maybe it's worth a lot. Maybe it's worth nothing. But I think part of what's compelling about it is the paganism. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about a society that's rooted in exactly in Judeo-Christian thought and ethics, the yeah. way that so many of the books that we read written in the Western civilization are. And so it just, the expectations of how well, people act how it, and what's it, right and what's wrong. Yeah, it all it's feels how it is weird. always undermining your expectations. Right. That's part of the pleasure of it is the way that it's constantly undermining your expectations. But that's that's the how, mm-hmm. is that it's deeply pagan instead of Christian. I remember mm-hmm. you telling me, Jake, that, uh, well, our good friend Pencils are gifted. Yes, uh, I, I, w- I was having this same exact thought. Spirited Away, the wonderful yep. Miyazaki movie, the animated I was uh, going to draw the same comparison. Yep. Movie. What a bizarre and, movie. Yeah, it's a bizarre movie. I love it. Oh, yeah. But, well, you should just say, because you were thinking the same thing, and it's your story. Well, I was only just going to say that it's the same effect Miyazaki films have on people. What's so attractive and compelling about them, or certain other kinds of anime or whatever that are rooted in Japanese culture. Right. Part of what's attractive and compelling is the fact that it is coming out of left field. The assumptions, the expectations, the presuppositions are radically different. And so what's expected in sto- in the telling of a story is radically different. And so that can be really cool and really refreshing or just really neat to experience that mm-hmm. for the first time. It could also be really upsetting. Uh, I was gifted spirited away and it was really upsetting to my kids i had never watched it Mm -hmm. came highly recommended super highly rated was a gift for my family from a close friend i put it in to watch it with the kids thinking okay cool we get to watch this great classic that we've never seen and my kids found it very disturbing and there's nothing particularly there's some creepy stuff but what's disturbing about it is as much as anything just that you, it's can, otherly. you can't put your finger on it. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where the lines are going to be drawn, what the characters are capable of. You know, there's certain lines that a Disney villain, as evil as he might be, isn't you, going you to cross. You know he's not going to cross those and lines. And kids know that. And they know yeah. that he's going to be punished at the end. And they know kind of how he's going to be punished. They have these... So you can have these really super evil characters, but he's playing by a set of rules. Right. The rules are all out the window. Maleficent is scary, but she's scary in a certain way, and she's going to be punished in a certain way. And you know that coming in. You don't, you, for a kid who's been trained by Western stories, mm-hmm. 
coming into something like Spirited Away, their expectations are just constantly being upset so that everything feels upside down. Right. Everything feels scary. Nothing feels certain. And it is that really pagan sense of, actually, at the end of the day, it's the really pagan sense that God is not in his heaven. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you cannot be assured that there will be justice. Right. And that the lines between good and evil are not as clear as the line between heaven and hell. And that's scary and frightening and upsetting. An adult coming to, to a story like that who may be a little cynical about how clean the lines of a Disney film are drawn, you know, can take some pleasure in some of the chaos of a, of a spirited away, a Miyazaki mm-hmm. type thing. In the same way, just sort of coming to and enter, entering into the mindset of how the other half of the world lives right. is interesting and not necessarily attractive in and of itself, but compelling Yeah, because it's still deeply human. It's still deeply human and still deeply in its own weird way affected by Western traditions too. Right. Because it is in well, the it's, end Well, it's with in colonial. conversation with it, right? Yeah. It's interacting with it, right? You've got, we're talking about India, so we're talking about yep. a country that was under British occupation for years and years and years and years and years. And so it can't escape that. But what we don't have is, you know, Tom Cruise and Last Samurai or Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves. This is not from the point of view of a Westerner who have to, has to enter into it. It's from an Indian point of view. And, from, so yeah, and so we have European and Western and Catholic in particular inter- influences, stuff. but it's all seen through the eyes of someone who's Muslim, who's mm-hmm. pagan, who's Hindu, yeah. you know, who, he, he's, who brings this different set of assumptions. And yep. he, He's able to step in and out of being both Muslim and Hindu mm-hmm. because he is Kashmiri Indian. Well, and I find it... And, <clears throat> well, I think that is part of what appealed to me, especially probably in a second reading would have been that otherness to me of an, a culture that wasn't mine. So this sounds, it's the part of liberalism. That's true. Being open to other cultures and ideas. There's an appeal to that mm-hmm. because we, how else are you going to get that experience? You get it through literature, right? You don't have the money to go travel to India. And even then you would still be a white man in India. Here you have Salman Rushdie and writing can, a book. In yeah. And you can live in his skin for yeah. 530 pages. Right. right. Just like, so there's a, a one, I told you guys about that interview with Salman Rushdie and I sent you the link. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever posted it. I, it was in the show notes for last episode, okay. actually. We should put it on yeah. our Instagram. Yeah, I'll put it on Instagram. It's, Instagram's it's wonder- been hopping lately, guys. Follow. Yeah. yeah, you guys should follow it. We do fun stories yeah, a lot of fun. and stuff. You can see us. We're, we're on there. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing he pointed out is he's never visited Russia. This is Salman Rushdie saying this, mm-hmm. but he knows what it's like he thinks to be a Russian because he's read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and being into war and peace again, I can say yeah, with confidence, I think I know what it was must be like to at least have been an upper class Russian. <laughs> oh, I feel like I know what it's like to cut wheat. I know what it's like yeah. to go on a, a dog hunt. I mean, Tolstoy yeah. just puts you there in a way that nobody does. And Salman Rushdie can kind of do similar stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a weird way, I know what it's like to have the mentality of an Indian man like mm-hmm. that. Now, this is a strange Indian man who has this bent towards storytelling. And so there's the mixing of truth and lies all throughout this book. Mm-hmm. But I do think that... That kind of relativism is, yeah. in fact, very Hindu. It is. Yeah. But also, it is, and it's very, for lack of a better word, I mean, I've been teaching postmodernism to students and trying to help them realize that it's not really an easy term to just throw around Mm -hmm. because nobody actually thinks of themselves as a postmodern. Like it's not the same as a modernist. 
to bring them in. I did it. Right. There you can go. I get a, can I get a golf clap? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. The modernists actually thought of themselves as modernists. Postmodernists didn't. Right. But there are all things that postmodernists do that are similar. Mm-hmm. One of the things they do is play with form. And Salman Rushdie does that. I mean, you really have no clue what's going to happen with this story. Mm-hmm. This is a completely inventive, creative. And I think that's part of the other appeal for me, especially as a young man would have been. Here's someone who's making a work Busting of art. all the conventions. Yeah, and this is a work of art. Mm-hmm. And yet it's unlike anything I had ever read up to that point. And that's similar with War and Peace. And we'll talk about that too. This is a novel and not a novel. Right. It's it's a weird creature. Yeah. It's sort of like saying that Jimi Hendrix was the greatest blues player to ever live. Yeah. Well, you can only hear Jimi Hendrix play straight up up blues in a couple of recordings. Mm Mm-hmm. But what people really mean when they say that, and a lot of people really do say that, is that what Jimi Hendrix was doing was taking the rules of blues and breaking them mm-hmm. constantly to create something new that didn't resemble the blues in the first place. But the only way he could have ever have done it is to have been a true master. Right. It only blues. exists in conversation with yeah. the blues. Well, the music analogy is really good for this book. It reminds me, it has the same excitement and verve of the Beatles around 69, you know, Sergeant Peppers, Abbey Road, that period where they've hit their stride, they know what they're doing, and now they just want to stuff their music with every influence, with every idea. They want to break forms. They want to do their delightful variations mm-hmm. on old forms. You know, they want to write silly love songs like they grew up with, but then they want to twist them, and then they want to show something that's grotesque underneath, and then they want to show that they can just do the beautiful stuff as well as anybody. That's Salman Rushdie, right? He's yeah. He's just... He's showing off in a way that, you know, it's easy to fall on your face when you show off like this. It's easy to write a crap novel that no one would ever care about, but he pulls it off. It reminds me, I once took a trip. So I have a friend out in LA, now a Grammy Award winning uh, engineer and producer. At the time that I went out to LA to visit him, he was uh, working his butt off at Schnee Studios. Out in LA, at least when I was there, that stereotype is true that you could go to any any bar any restaurant and ask the waiter what they really do Mm -hmm. you know find out that they write movies or that they they write scripts or they they're trying to be an actress or whatever it is felt like everybody out there was like that that i met and so there was this one guy uh worked at a vineyard and i forget what he was actually there to do i think probably music he moved there from tennessee his inspiration in life was this guy named shuby taylor Oh yeah, I know Shuby Taylor. And Shuby Taylor is this guy who did the called himself the human horn, basically tried to do this weird horn sounding scat singing over these pre recorded tracks of Johnny Cash or whatever else. Huh. And sometimes he had solo tracks or whatever. But he was really super convinced that he was really great and that nobody, you know, that his genius would be recognized in time. And if you go and look him up and listen to him, go look, watch some videos or whatever, find his stuff on YouTube. It's just hilariously bad stuff. But the reason that this guy had latched on to Shuby Taylor is that everybody out here, they have to be fully convinced that what they're doing is unique and special. Mm-hmm. But they also have to realize they may just be the idiot who's making weird buzzing sounds with his mouth and his going to get mocked on this on the stage of the apollo or whatever that's that's what the way that something like midnight's children feels like to me like there are so many risks that Mm -hmm. are taken 
with structure, with form, with everything about this book, he had to have felt half insane writing it. He had to wonder, is this, is this insane? That's a swing for the fences kind of book. He's either going to write a masterpiece or strike out and write a pile of crap that no one, like those are the two choices. No, there's, there's not justly will ever care about. There's not a lot of in between. Yeah, exactly. He had that worry. He says in that interview that he knew that he was a good writer, but he also had that question in his mind when he was trying, because Grimus was such a failure, his mm-hmm. first novel, that he didn't wasn't sure that this would make it. And he knew it was a risk. And he thinks that had this failed, it would have crushed him, that he would not have pursued anything after this. Well, he's at, he's at this place where he's got to think to himself, essentially, I know that actually I'm a genius Mm -hmm. and I've created a genius work of art. My job is to convince the world that my time has come and to hope that I live to see the day when my time, like he has to be a full believer in what he's doing to first to have created this and then to have gone out and been able to sell it. That's just a knife's edge kind of thing. The world's full of creative people who are doing creative things and who don't have the guts to really believe in it and sell it. Mm -hmm. And the world is full of people who have the potential to do those kinds of things who don't have the guts to create it in the first place. The great works of art are by people who have the guts and the work ethic to produce it, to believe in it, and to sell it, and to still get lucky and get their break. That's the trifecta. And that's what he got. He's got the guts. He sure does. And this is a gutsy book. I think that's a good way of putting it. This book is all, it's full of so many risks. He's all in. Yeah. And that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. Just, all the chips are on the table. Yep. Yeah. As soon as you have that weird, like Padma enters and mm-hmm. he's in the, he's in the pickling factory and the weird interstitial parts like that, it's, you're it's just like, like, and he's got a giant nose. It's like, yeah. this is stupid. This could be really Cucumber stupid. Nose. And he gets Moon his powers <laughs> by by snorting snot into the deep recesses that then start making the neurons fire in right. a certain way. It's gross. It's stupid. This is the kind of thing. It's like a great comedian. Yeah. If if he loses the audience, then they're lost forever. But you and know, it doesn't matter how good the material. It doesn't is matter how that. good yeah. the material is. And and Salman Rushdie is always a Rushdie. I should say. I'm gonna keep calling him Rushdie because that's just what he looks like phonetically. Um. He's just always walking that knife's edge of losing them. It actually reminds me a lot of Shakespeare, especially with the the yeah. common, the vulgar aspect of what he yeah. does. That's why I put it there. The the snot, the things that I can't even talk about on our, you know. The unmentionable things. The, the yeah. unmentionable, the bodily functions that occur yeah. in this book. It's very Shakespearean in the way that it combines high art with low, yeah. gross, very low vulgarity. Gr- vulgar humor, yeah. Well, that's part of even... That in itself is part of what's attractive about the book is that he's like, he's a fiddler on the roof. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. he, he's walking on that knife's edge the whole time. And you, I remember thinking early in the book, I remember like stepping back and wondering, is he going to fall off? Be so easy. From the, like the very first sentence, very first <laughs> paragraph of this book, I'm like, this is stupid or it's brilliant. It's one or the other. I guess I'd better give it a shot. And eventually I get lost, you know, after a couple of pages probably, it probably didn't take that long, Mm -hmm. but I get lost in in the story and then I never get let go by it. But it is part of of what is compelling. This is a 
he's a writer's writer. Yeah, yeah. And yes. part of what's compelling about the book is watching him dance, dance, and just dance like nobody's ever. Is Michael Jackson busts out the moonwalk. Mm-hmm. On yeah. the knife edge. But if he's a fiddler on the roof, he's a fiddler on the roof, standing on one foot in roller skates, jumping up and down from roof to roof. So the first moment you're like, oh no, he's going to break his neck. This is and, the- then you, and then he catches himself and does something ridiculous. And then you're like, okay. And at a certain point, here. You, you, you just forget <laughs> to even be scared for him. You're yeah. just like, oh, this is great. It's like a circus performance, you know, at a certain point. Yeah, and then you get to the end, and then you step back and you realize- Oh, he almost killed himself, all for he, me. He was going to die- with any false step for the last 12 hours of his performance. Yeah. yeah. But there were no false steps. Right. He comes close. Oh, he there comes few, close. But even to the last, I mean, that last paragraph is one of the great last paragraphs. Let's hear it. Give our listeners a taste. If people haven't read yeah, it. I think it has actually five pages. Well, I'm looking at this. Right I'm looking now. at this. <laughs> with his fingers. I want to make a point about his style because yeah. I think that you're right. He's a, he is a writer's writer. Mm-hmm. Let me make these points first. So one of the things he does is his, his prose is just energetic. And one of the ways he, do, he does this is he has these hyphens like chain reactive, tourism in a clock tower. These are all like, tour, it's not tourism in a clock tower. It's tourism-in-a-clock tower. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. all these combinations of things that I think that Danny Boyle with Slumdog Millionaire was trying to do it with mm-hmm. that sort of bright colors and quick scenes that flash back and forth. And then suddenly you're in the future, then suddenly you're in the past. And it's, but it all ties together. And it's very fast. It feels like... The cinematic equivalent done poorly would be like a Boz Lerman movie or something. Where That's right. Like, Boz Lerman tries to do what Rusty does with words. Right. It's arguably not quite as successful. He's not. But Rusty's cinematic in a way that only Tolstoy is as cinematic as yeah. And Tolstoy's on my brain right now. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, well, how can well, he not be? We're reading War and Peace. Reading War and Peace. Yeah, and but that, that's one thing that... I was telling these guys earlier, I just read the scene where they were trying to get across the dam mm-hmm. at Austerlitz mm-hmm. and talk about cinematic. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're there with those guys. It's frightening. But yeah, he also does it through ellipses. There are a lot, just on this page I'm looking at, there's one, two, three, four. It's where it'll be through the gate, dash, dash, dash. But no, I'm not explaining it right. Dash, dash, dash. Mm-hmm. Let me do it this way. Dash, dash, dash. Or period, period, period is what mm-hmm. I mean. Instead of dash. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Period, period. <laughs> <laughs> he also does it with colons. Did you notice this? So he'll like have, I had one of them marked here. My mumai, my auntie, the divine Pia Aziz, colon. To live with her was to exist in the hot, sticky heart of a Bombay talkie. He does this all the time. My India. Ah, my India, colon. Then he describes it and what this allows him to do is kind of wax poetical Mm -hmm. and then give you details about it yeah so he can be both abstract and also detailed about this thing the way he uses detail is amazing insane yeah and so he makes you feel like he's you're there with him but all the time through his even i guess my point is even through the punctuation in his sentences he never lets you forget that he's there telling Mm -hmm. you this story that's part of the wonder of it is that Rushdie's always there. The yeah. story, uh, through he the never gets out of the Salim, way and just lets the story. But he is the storyteller in a way that few other authors are, but I think, it's one of, I think it's one of his characteristics. That's what he does. He's always there with you telling you this story. And I think that if you ever read Haroon in the Sea of Stories, it's the same way. Mm-hmm. It's, pre- it's fantastic the way he handles this stuff. You said Boz Lerman earlier. I thought you were going to say Guy Ritchie. <laughs> same kind of thing. Yeah, Guy Ritchie. Kind of I think right. they both are... 
trying to do the same thing. And they both have do what Brandon just said, which is they will not get out of the way. Guy Ritchie wants you to be like, it's a Guy Ritchie movie, in case you were wondering. Yeah. And Baz Luhrmann, same thing. And in both those guys' cases, I'd say it can be a little annoying. But the great thing about Salman Rushdie is that the difference between an amateur and a pro when it comes to this kind of jumble of words and you Images, know puns and allusions, I think and... uh, an amateur sounds like they're, they sound affected. They sound like they're, they're putting trying. it on. They're trying. Rushdie, it feels absolutely inevitable. Like Natural. the only possible way that this story could be told is this way. I, it, was, yeah. it was put upon me like, yes, I'm showing off, but, but it's because I have to show off to get this point across. This story will not work if I don't jump up on the roof and start dancing. It's that inevitability. You know, the amateur, like high school writers go over the top all the time and it always feels like, well, you're doing with 15 words what you could actually do with three here. So shut up, kid, and revise, omit needless words. With Rushdie, there are no needless words, actually. It feels like he's omitting everything he possibly can, but he's just got this big, splashy, technicolor, crazy color, Bollywood. But what you find often with authors like this is that they'll... And what Jake was worried about, and which was what I think disappointed you with Bleak House, was that an author commits early on to a style like this, Mm -hmm. and then it fails eventually. Yeah. But with Rushdie, it never stops. He makes it to the end. Yeah. He succeeds in keeping it up, and in drawing you along with him, and in as weird as it gets, and he has a hue, I mean, the task at hand is enormous, to connect this one character to the history of his country. Right. And everything that happens to him is somehow reflects what's happening to India. Yeah. And so I, uh, he does it with his style. And I think that was, that's the main point I wanted to make there is that you even mm. see it in the punctuation he does and the paragraph breaks he has. Like early on when he's talking about dot, dot, uh, dot, 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 Gandhi, the landowner snaps his braces with his thumbs, dot, dot, good, dot, 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 good enough, dot, 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 family. And so he's using these dots to mm-hmm. jump to all these other little details that are also connecting. Some of them might jump a little bit forward. Some might jump a little bit back, but it's all whirling around yeah. this momentum that wants to move you forward. And it's brilliant. The best chapter, the best example of this is the chapter TikTok. Mm-hmm. Is that such where Salim is born? Uh, yes. And that's yeah. just such a brilliant chapter. Yeah. 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 And he does it with his paragraph. I mean, mm-hmm. his, um, the, t- the titles of his chapters. It's well, just, it really does. If you've, if you've read, I mean, it feels like prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It yeah, feels it like Hindu prophecy. It feels like. I don't know. I I was a religious studies major, so I've read a lot actually of the Bhagavad Gita and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It feels like a secular body book. That it, stuff, it has that right? it like, has that feeling of urgency that only comes through religious fervor almost. Yeah. It's yeah. it's um And it is. He has a religious of, fervor towards telling the story. Well, well, and you know, and he gives Salim this sense of destiny and time is running out, mm-hmm. you know, and it, that's a contrivance that is pretty naked in terms of creating that effect, but it's it also works. very effective. But what's brilliant is he tells you that because in that right. chapter TikTok, Padma's the uh, the reader surrogate. No, the right. voice of reason. Yeah, so he says, it. he starts off with TikTok, no. Padma can hear it. There's nothing like a countdown for building suspense. He tells you exactly what he's doing. That's a yeah. great, that's such a <laughs> naked trick, but it's a great yeah. trick that great authors use all the time, which is you're about to accuse me of something. Let me accuse myself first. And that's yeah. the only function I think of Padma in the story is to just call him on all his BS from step to step. Like every time we're about to say, okay, to guy, we, we see what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. She's, she says, oh, I gotcha. Yeah. It's that, it's that impulse as you're writing. I feel like I'm going to lose people here. Just time for Padma have. to come out. Yeah, exactly. 
But he's just a ma- he's a master at telling these. You always feel like you're in the hands of a master storyteller here. Mm-hmm. Like and now, driven by Padma and TikTok, I move on, acquiring Mahatma Gandhi. Next paragraph, hurtling on. I pause to pick up the game of hit the spittoon. Five years, so it's just well, that's it's just yeah energy to it. What I think is that he's so intuitively he so intuitively anticipates the places where you're going to get lost or lose. He's going to lose you. That it's actually super smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Padma comes in before you know that you need Padma to stand in right. for you, and then Padma is there to tell you the objections you were about to hit. Yeah, you, but you never hit them. But you, you never you actually you, hit them. He doesn't them. almost lose you like a yeah. almost good writer would do. He he doesn't lose you at all because he's there. It's the same thing with the supernatural elements. He knows yeah. just when to pull back, just when to say, oh, well, actually there wasn't a ghost. Just when <laughs> <Yeah>. to say. He's <laughs> <laughs> the guy with leprosy, that's yeah. all. Yeah. But he might have been cursed. But he might have been cursed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing we haven't mentioned is this book is very funny. It is. Like in an earthy Shakespearean kind of it way. It is, but like the TikTok chapter, it ends with the, you have this whole emotional buildup and then this energy towards him being born. And this mm-hmm. is your 130 pages into the book at this point. Right. And you're like, what? But I'm still entertained, right. but still like, you're just now entering your own story. And then Padma, the way the chapter ends, and it also ends book one, mm-hmm. she says, don't be vain, Padma says grumpily. 100 rupees is not so little. After all, everybody gets born. It's not such a big thing. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> everybody gets born yeah it's not such a big thing it's fantastic what a great little line so yeah. i when i read this book the first time i jotted down some lines that stuck out to me i thought i'd just read them just so people can get an idea this was my favorite paragraph i think in the book this was such a wonderful paragraph by the time the rains came at the end of june the fetus was fully formed inside her womb knees and nose were present and as many heads as would grow were already in position what it had been at the beginning no bigger than a full stop had extended into a comma a word, a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter. Now it was bursting into more complex developments, becoming, one might say, a book, perhaps an encyclopedia, even a whole language. That's great. Oh, that gives me chills. What a great metaphor. And then another phrase I jotted down, and I don't remember the context for any of these, but these are just things that are, the terrible inevitability of soap. That's just a great phrase. <clears throat> I put it down to being a bad poet and therefore a born survivor. Yeah. <laughs> now that might be the wisest, deepest thing that we've ever read. It's yeah. Bad poets deep. are born survivors. Born survivors. Yeah. And good poets <laughs> uh, don't lose survive. everything. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and then this is just a nice Jane Austen kind of phrase. She had understood his future and forgiven him because of it, his appearance. That's just yeah. like, you, know, you don't get more better than, you don't get more, you don't get more better than, yeah. Great. It's wonderful. And that's another way that this book works is, it has those little gems all over the place. I think that's what kind of keeps you going place, is yeah. every page is going to have a punchline or a metaphor or just a cool line of dialogue or a connection to a previous metaphor right? Yeah. or a setup that is obvious that, Hey, I better hang on to that mm-hmm. because it's going to p- be paid off later. Like there's just always something. Right. You're never waiting for the next cool, colorful, interesting detail. Cause it's, yeah, it's, there's always another one. And it's one. all going to interconnect. And it's all going to come back. And we promised we would read the last paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's close that loop. Yes, they will trample me underfoot. The numbers marching one, two, three, four hundred million, five hundred six, reducing me to specks of voiceless dust. Just as, in all good time, they will trample my son who is not my son, and his son who will not be his, and his who will not be his, until the thousand and first generation, until a thousand and one midnights have bestowed their terrible gifts and a thousand and one children have died. Because it is the privilege and the curse of Midnight's children to be both masters and victims of their times, 
to forsake privacy and be sucked into the annihilating whirlpool of the multitudes and to be unable to live or die in peace. It's just... That's great. I, coming, uh, looking at the book from a distance, it's easy to look at the book with uh, the glow of everything that was great about it, but I also want to acknowledge that in the process of reading this book, man, was it gross. Yes. And I don't just mean gross in terms of like, some of the content was gross, but I really did not, as much as I enjoy and, and truly enjoyed reading the book, I couldn't get it over with soon enough because I think this connects to what we were saying before, but while the, the worldview was unique and interesting and colorful and different, it was also disturbingly pagan and I did not enjoy well, living there. One of the things that Western civilization based on Christ has given us is people that just don't talk about feces that much. Just to give an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. And this book is just so obsessed with bodily functions. There's a guy that, I don't know, there's not a polite way to say this. There's a 14-inch feces in the book that's described. There's just all these things. It's just, when you say dirty, it's actually dirty. Yes. It is actually dirty. But I think that the filth, the actual presence of filth, is uh, connected to a filthiness of the worldview itself that permeates every aspect of this book. So I don't think this book needs the feces that it has in order to feel dirty and gross. But I guess the reason, I guess I just think that they're one in the same. Like there's a spirit of something that makes you say those kinds of things. You you know what I mean? Like the book, yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. You could cut out all the things that are explicitly gross and you'd still have this gross. It would still feel very gross feeling, very pagan, very Hindu, very disturbingly godless. But the godlessness is also evident in the fact that he doesn't it works cut its those way things. down into all of the, like part of the genius of it is that his worldview or whatever, I hate that phrase, but his Indianness works its way out into all the cracks of existence. And so, yeah, it, you know, you feel it everywhere mm. in every detail. And some of those details are gross and terrible. But part of the problem is just the Hinduness slash Muslimness of it all. Well, one thing that feels gross is just, just as an example of what you're talking about, the sex never feels at all wholesome. Yeah, there. I mean, there, and there's lots, a lot of explicitly unwholesome stuff. There's this weird. What's I mean, the there's word? the incest. Yeah, there's the incest stuff. There's the his attraction to his aunt or whoever she is. There's and then also his, his attraction to his sister, even though she's not. His even sister. though she's not technically his sister, but man, Still. people have been using that trope to get away with I incest know. stories for a long time. I wasn't trying to excuse it, yeah, Brandon. <laughs> Old incest excusing Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> That's not Brandon's nickname. <laughs> um. No, I am not going to be called that. <laughs> And that will not be your new name on, <laughs> no. on the booking. Um, <laughs> but even like the first example of eroticism in the book is the guy that's looking through the sheet and he's seeing different little pieces of the body. He's a doctor and th- he's not allowed to see this woman, this young girl that he's uh, yeah. caring for. And so these women hold this sheet and he looks through it and he sees different little pieces of her body and he falls in love with her. Kind of a magical conceit for lack of a better word yeah a better word there but even there there's something kind of earthy and unclean and even though he's never explicit yeah there is something that feels unclean about it like okay updike is anatomically explicit yeah 
and people should not read Updike because he's very pornographic mm-hmm. in a very American sleazy way. And I have opinions about Updike. I think he's a great stylist, but still, mm-hmm. if someone wants to fight me on it, fine, I'll fight you. Mm-hmm. Come at me. Rushdie, there's something that does feel pagan and dirty about it. I mean, there's a reason that I decided not to read him for a long time. Yeah. Because there was an appeal to it that I thought was unhealthy. I don't. I still don't think I was completely wrong to do that for a while. I don't begrudge a mature person reading this book. I do begrudge a mature person obsessing about this book or or, or deciding that they need to read all of them and and just live there. I don't think it's a place that you want to live. It's you might be able to visit it to some profit. Yeah, Yeah, I would not. I mean, I think for me. Salman Rushdie is a once every five years kind of author. Like Mm -hmm. I might read another one of his books five years from now and I'll probably really love it. Right. I'll probably also want to get it over with Mm -hmm. and be done with it and have this weird, unpleasant sense of maybe being defiled Mm -hmm. that if I linger here too long, you know. Yeah. No, you shouldn't. I mean, the obvious point of comparison for a lot of people that have found this book is probably Marquez. Yeah. And he's explicitly he's, gross in a way that I think crosses the line into you don't even want to spend time with him every five years. You he's just, sensuous in a very South American way. And yeah. They, yeah. I mean, you just, when you go to these different cultures, you also get the sins of those cultures too. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to partly is that these cultures have their... Well, yeah. And so I don't want to... Uh, you know, I don't want to be uh, blank centric. You're Anglo centric, us centric, Americo. You want to be a white, whitey? You're not giving me the the word that I want here, but ethnocentric. I think okay. I don't. I don't want to be ethnocentric, but we are inescapably ethnocentric. Yeah, and I think some of that is simply having the ability to deal with the devils you know versus the devils you don't know. And sometimes the devils you know are devils that you're far too comfortable with. Right. And so it's easier to condemn the devils that you don't know because you're not comfortable with them. You didn't grow up living with them. But also it is easier to to be discerning and fight the devils that you know if you have a mind to do so. Yeah. And part of what's difficult about a book like Midnight's Children is that, and compelling, is that here's a world of devils that you don't know. It's interesting and it's fascinating. And you want to see and understand the people that mm. deal with these devils. And yet you don't want to be defiled by them. Yeah, because it can also tempt. I mean, I have a friend who now has completely given himself over to Japanese culture. Mm. Yeah. And he was this wounded kid from a homeschooled background, his father and mother. I won't give too many details so nobody can figure out who he is. But <laughs> some stuff happened to him. And so he completely turned away from the Christian faith and is now completely devoted to Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. And that's his thing. And that tempted him away because it's Japanese. For him, that was what he needed. And he found all his answers in turning to that. And so you could see how someone could be tempted to... So it's not like I was tempted to become an Indian. Right. Or to become... Hindu or Muslim. Yeah, or a a Midnight's Children. Or or a child, a Midnight's Child. But there was something appealing, I think... In his atheism and agno- or yeah, in his atheism and his intellectual way of looking at the world, in the way that he used story to make sense of things, in this yeah, in his sort of callous view of things that just really appealed to me in a way that wasn't healthy for me at that time. Well, it's almost his relativism in terms yeah. of how he even understands history and reality and truth. 
Yeah, yeah. it was Rushti and Yates at the same time. Mm-hmm. They were kind of like a double punch. And they both came at me with something that kind of felt like it could replace God for me. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it came down to, is they could give me something else that could satisfy, not to get all C.S. Lewis here, but could satisfy that hunger. Mm-hmm. Well, they do something. I, 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 keep, I keep thinking, for me, it's Leonard Cohen. And what Leonard yeah. Cohen does is he takes the sensual and the profane, and he finds what's sacred about it or what feels sacred about it. And that's similar to what Rushdie does. You know, I was trying to put my finger on something about the sex stuff earlier. And I think it's that there's not an emotional, there's not the expected, or there's not like in a Western story or in a normal story of any type, you'd expect there to be more of a spiritual or an emotional component to the sexual stuff. Not so much. But but it's never there. No. And it's weird. You feel- it is relegated to the level of bodily function. It is. It is a bodily function and you don't, and it's not like, you know, you can read us about a knight and a princess and the knight just falls in love with her because she's the beautiful princess. But it, there's always this whole world of emotional and spiritual stuff that's maybe stupidly and cheesily, but it is implied. Whereas with Rusty, it really is just like he fell in love with a leg and then he fell in love with an arm and then he fell in like, love with yeah. the unmentionable. There's nothing much more to it than that. And there is some stuff later on with Padma that gets a little dicey. Yeah. There are people that shouldn't read this book. Yeah. I would say that. Um, People that might be more tempted. Toilets are for some orifices. and Listeners, if you're listening with kids, skip forward about 90 seconds because Jake's going to say something from the book that I think you should know about if you're thinking about reading it. And he's going to say it nicer than the book says it, but you still might want to skip forward a little bit. Jake? Uh, The basic principle is there are some receptacles for some bodily fluids and some receptacles for other bodily fluids. Toilets are for certain bodily fluids. Other body parts are to receive other bodily fluids. And you just, you know, it's a bodily function and you got to find the right place to put the right thing. And that's about the level Mm -hmm. of glory that we get when it comes to sex. And that's also why we're weirdly obsessed with feces. Yeah. Other bodily functions. It's just bodily functions. It's There's nothing more to it. Right. that there's nothing more glorious or more spiritual or emotional really about it it's just a thing that's got to happen one way or another right but a rush that can't happen and so it's kind of frustrating but either way it's just atoms colliding with other atoms at the end of the day yeah. but i think what rusty does that's brilliant and also perversely attractive is not to paint Indian culture is great, but to paint this kind of atheistic, cosmopolitan relativism, what he actually does is stand outside all of it and say, it's all stupid, but man, you can make something pretty cool out of it with story. Yeah. Because yeah. he even adds like, so as emotionless as things like that are, or as just like the gritty realism to acts like that. Mm-hmm. There is the scene where his mom goes and sees the poet again. Yeah. And they're in the diner together. Yeah. And the way that they have, they like touch, is it an apple or something they have between them? Something like that, yeah. Because they can't touch hands, but they can touch the thing between them. That's the movie. Is that in the movie? Confusing the movie and the- Well, doesn't that, or he imagines he sees that when they go. Let me try to find that. Yeah, you should find it. Uh, Maybe Love in Bombay. Because there is that, maybe I just got confused because you reminded me of that part of the movie where the apple is the stand-in for what they can't do to- each other and it becomes this really gross that's from the book isn't it because i've not seen the movie have you guys both seen the movie he's talking about there's a movie in oh in the movie oh right yeah in the book 
Okay. He come up his with uncle's this, the filmmaker. Yes, 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 yes. I remember now. Comes up with a way to circumvent the the purity laws of Bombay. What would be the Catholics yeah. of of you know the nineteen twenties, thirties, forties, fifties? You know, and so they like do two. I do one thing to the apple, then you do something to the apple. Yeah, that's do. that's fantastic. His whole take on Indian cinema is hilarious and awesome. Yeah, but it turns into this central erotic, right. amazingly. Which if you've ever watched an Astaire and Rogers movie or something like that, or, or some of the really weird, dirty pre-code stuff, they can do a lot with an apple back in the days when they weren't allowed to show thing explicit, things explicitly. In Ameri- even in America, they could... Uh, I could do... They could be far more erotic with an apple yeah. than HBO can be. They really could. Yeah, here uh, we go. They really could. In the Pioneer Cafe, what I saw at the very end, my mother's hands raising a half-empty glass of lovely lassie, my mother's lips pressing gently nostalgically against the mottled glass, my mother's hands handing the glass to her Nadir Kasim, who also applied to the opposite side of the glass his own poetic mouth. So it was that life imitated bad art, and my uncle Hanif's sister brought the eroticism of the indirect kiss into the green neon dinginess of the Pioneer Cafe. So he was connecting it. Yeah. To yeah. Life Uncle imitates Hanif. bad art is what he was saying. Life yeah. imitates bad art. And so they couldn't touch one another, mm-hmm. but she could see him and they could almost Share a kiss. glass. Right. Yeah. And almost kiss. That's great. And so there is that s- sort of longing that he gets at there, which still is wicked. <laughs> yeah. But, Does anybody in this book get what they want? Or is this just a story of impotence? I think it's a story of impotence, isn't it? Because, Brandon, you said something really interesting to me when you were talking about this book Parvati, in your context. the witch gets to marry Salim, but she yeah, doesn't that, get... Yeah. Brandon said this isn't a political book. And to me, it felt like a political book, and it felt like he was just so... One of the things that ties the book together and makes it compelling is that he's so angry about what happened in India. He is. It's really yeah. interesting hearing him talk about the process that led up to this. Mm-hmm. Because he did not consider himself to be a political man until after what happened with with the with the fatwa, yeah, with the fatwa, for fatwa, whatever. And say so it. he, even though he's interested in Indian history, he would not have really considered himself to be a completely invested in politics. At least that's no, how he remind presents me, himself. Is this pre or post fatwa? This is pre. This, that's what I yeah. thought. Pre. But so this but made to me, him this famous. Reads like, then, like I remember a pastor one time when I was about eleven saying, "Nathan, you're a very angry young man." And I didn't think I was a very angry young man, but I realized. After that, as an angry young man, this book just reads like the work of someone who's so angry at the mother, at the sterilizations, at the emergency, at just everything that's happened to his culture. He's just, he's, the only way he can make sense of it is like, they were trying to hunt down the Midnight's children. Like the fantasy throws into stark relief how nasty what happened. There was this wonderful promise of magical, of a magical future, and they were intent on stamping out every last vestige of what could have been special and beautiful about the future of India. They were going to trample it and they were going to sterilize it and they were going to make sure it never, ever was special or beautiful in any of the ways that it ever could have been. That's the message when it comes to India's history. And yeah. also, and that's, that's a very... I mean, that's a very political statement. And, yeah. and it's, it's a political statement and it's an angry one. Yeah, And it, it's angry in the sense of like, the only way I can explain this is Voldemort. Anything yeah. less won't do. And the fact that there wasn't actually a Voldemort, the fact that there were no Midnight's children just makes it that much more painful. But that's actually too painful to even acknowledge. So let's create a fantasy where yeah. Voldemort was out to stamp out the Midnight's children. And that'll at least give some explanation to the senselessness of 
of no, what happened. I mean, I'm with you. I, I read this and I was wondering why Indira Gandhi didn't have him on sort of, some sort of kill list after this book was published. Right. I guess the only way to th- for me to think about it is to as to why he insists on he wasn't political mm-hmm. was that maybe he didn't see himself who as someone who was vocally committed to politics, right. but he was still someone who is concerned about his nation, right? It would be like someone- Well, look, there's no book. What 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 is the nature of, of writing? You have to have something to say. Right. Yeah. And then you have to be able to say it well. Right. Right. He's got something to say. Mm-hmm. And he has an amazing way of saying it. Mm-hmm. And we've spent a lot of time talking about the amazing way of saying it, the saying it well. But if you don't have anything to say, you still don't have a book. He's got something to say. He's got something that lit him on fire. Well, it seems like... That inspired The him. senselessness of evil and the impotence. Like, if there's one thing that defines the Indian character as portrayed in this book, I don't know if this is the real Indian character, I just don't know. But everyone, you know, the more I think about it, I think impotence the word. You've got Salim... And he uses he he misuses his powers to like get good grades and get sex, and, and then he loses them. Remember, you, what's that? At the end of the book, he literally is impotent. Right. Yeah. Uh, Salim is in fact sterilized. Uh, Shiva isn't lets himself be sterilized. Yeah. You've got the guy who the poet that lives in the basement, and they, he's they, impotent. And he's impotent. They examine his wife, and they find that she's still a virgin. And you just have character after character after character that wants something. You know, the guy, that, the guy, the grandfather at the very beginning who bows down to pray to God and bashes his nose <laughs> yeah. and becomes an atheist. You know, there, there's just nobody, Pravardi the witch, anybody who isn't, you know, the only person who has any agency is Shiva. That is his name, right? The bad yeah. guy. Yeah. And it's all for... Or the white guy who leaves. Or the white guy who leaves. Who's right? Salim's actual dad. Yeah. I guess the woman, the 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 snake charmer has some some potency for a while, and even ends with it. He kind of gets wins. the does the, does the snake charmer get away with it? His yeah, sn- but it kills him. Right, right. He, he's he's like one of the one one of the only people that has any potency, and when he goes to assert it, it kills him. Right, Isn't right. That yeah. Basically, what happens? It's the line: the bad a bad poet, and therefore a bo- born survivor. Well, Salim is in fact a good poet, and therefore a born dire, dire loser. a born loser. Yeah. And the book has either people who are bad poets and therefore born survivors, or most of the people are actually pretty good poets and therefore doomed to senseless yeah. destruction. Yeah, sometimes literal. Yeah, there's As that in, guy in the gets army rid of his entire family with a few bombs. Yeah, 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 yeah. The spittoon. Well, and then there's the whole weird <laughs> I mean, army. Who knows where Jamila Singer is right now? She's, She's in got, a convent. She got disappeared yeah. by the impotent. Yep. In her own way. Yeah, and the only way he can infertile. At the least. only way he can be potent is by sorry, folks, but it's in the book. Uh, Fantasizing about his sister. Yeah. Um, who's not his sister? So it's all. It's Yay! fine. It's fine, Nathan. <laughs> approved. Acceptable. Nope. Not approved. Not acceptable. I think we've made this book sound like a book that people shouldn't read, but... Well, good, because it's it's really on the line. And I think that there are some people that shouldn't read it, and some people that will really enjoy it and have something to gain by it. And yeah. I think the only answer is for everyone to move to Bloomington mm-hmm. and become our friends, and mm-hmm. we'll help you We'll tell you, one way or not. another. You can line up, and we will... Yeah, you should, you shouldn't. Oh, and you... Definitely, definitely not. never even you never even heard of Salman Rushdie. Right. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Unlisten to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Um, we haven't really talked much about the magical realism aspects. I guess I kind of posited a theory, which is that the magical realism was the only way to make sense of what made him so angry. But why else? Like, why why go that direction? I think that you, I think that we've talked about it already. One, it adds to that extraordinary storytelling quality to this, and the it adds to the energy and the excitement and the weirdness of it. But also, I think what you said hits it on the head that this is his way of coming to terms with his country and the history of his country and what became of it. That's the usefulness here for him with magical realism. Is that it allows him to have a way of it's not a it's not even a coping mechanism. No, it's a way of describing and making sense of what the horrible things that happened under Indira Gandhi. Mm-hmm. And this is something he does. So, like in Harun in the Sea of Stories, he's says this wonderful story about a a boy whose mother leaves with another man, and the way that his father copes with it is by telling him stories. It's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful little book. And then by the end, she comes back. And so the land of story is, and so the whole story is about the land of story is under trouble and attack by this king of darkness. And you find out the king of darkness is this man that his father, his mother ran away with. And then it's all just kind of mixed together. And then by the end, it ends happily mm-hmm. with his mother coming home. And it's, so that's, the, that's kind of Rushdie's thing is he takes this magical realist element to help make sense of some fundamental either truth of story or here, truth of the history of his country. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by the way, I think that's often the function of fantasy. For as much as Tolkien talked about how Lord of the Rings had nothing to do with his experiences in World War One, I, I don't buy it for a second. Garbage. I think he wanted to make sense of war and of heroism and of all that and stuff. And if he didn't realize that that's what he wanted to do, then... Oh, yeah, I accept that that's... <laughs> I accept his opinion on the matter. I just think his opinion was... <laughs> I just think he didn't wrong. He didn't, didn't understand himself. He didn't understand. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not a World War allergy, uh, an analogy or whatever allegory. Allegory, yeah. And Aslan's not Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. C.S. Lewis never wrote any allegory in his life. Oh, guys, is there anything else you want to say about old Midnight's children? Supposal. Does somebody want to explain? Just in case somebody's gotten this far and they don't even understand what this book's about, <laughs> I feel like maybe we should like give a little. Synopsis? Synopsis or summary or- Are you going to uh, tag this one to the beginning? <laughs> nope. <laughs> if you made it this far through this discussion and you're like, what is this weird book that these guys are- I love hanging out with Brandon and Nathan. There are these listeners, actually. Yeah. I love hanging out. I listen to every episode, but- I have no idea what's going on. I have on. no idea what's going on. <laughs> I think we should just explain. Uh, so what, they can listen to this and then go back and listen to the beginning again. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's almost like the novel. It's, it's, you're it's the like, one that's read it six times, Brandon. Yeah. yeah, so it's about uh, this kid named Salim Sinai, mm-hmm. and we've given you bits and pieces throughout. He It starts out, this is going to be his story, and he doesn't know where to begin, and so he begins with his grandfather, <laughs> and then he goes on for like- Who's not actually his grandfather. Who's not actually that, but you don't find that out until much later, and it makes, did it make you mad when you found that out? It It definitely floored me. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And that's kind of the first introduction of Padma too. There's definitely the point was like all this stuff about my family, they're not actually my family. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But they were because- (laughs) They were because- They adopted me. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually, I really appreciate that. I think that our view of adoption, not to get off on a dumb tangent here, but- That was a good tangent, I think. Our view of adoption actually ought to, we're adopted into God's family- my history is the history of the people of God, period. I was adopted into that family. And so I share in this, Abraham is my father. Yep. 
and I own Abraham as my father, and I still get to own him as an outsider who was grafted in, mm-hmm. um, which makes it that much more cool and yep. special. But I, I, I think that Russell Moore, who has come to really be weak and bad in a lot of places, uh, was not weak on adoption uh, when he adopted his boys from Russia and would tell people. People would ask him, sorry, are you going to teach them about their heritage? Yeah. And he'd be like, yeah. And so they'd be like Peter and the Wolf. And he'd be like, no, Leonard Skinner, Johnny Cash, idiot. Their grandfather is from Mississippi, not from Russia. You know, and I just, that's really sweet and yeah. absolutely right. And there's uh, an element of that to this. And there's an element of that to this that I think is really sweet and really right. Well, Salim even feels like he's inherited certain things from <clears throat> his family with it turns out to not actually be his biological. But there's that yeah. confusion. Which is like true. Are they brothers? Yeah. Yes, they are brothers. Mm-hmm. Are they brother and sister? Yes, they are. Should he uh, desire her? No. No. <laughs> he shouldn't. He shouldn't. And it does have one of the sweeter moments in the books when he finds out that his family still wants him, even when they find out the truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's that's part of the story. And what you find out is that he is born, so this is all building up. His birth happened at exactly midnight on the day that India had its independence from its British colonial rule. And so that his life- His life life is the great metaphor. That's right. His life is tied directly to the history of India. And so then you have all these weird things that happen to him. But what he eventually finds out is that because of something that happens when he was hiding, which that's a scene that- is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but he sucks snot up into the deep recess of his, recesses of his brain, and he ends up having the ability to telepathically connect, <laughs> so it sounds so weird mm-hmm. when you're explaining it like this, to all the other children who were born at midnight of the same day, and there are a, thou- a thousand and one of them. And he had every, the closer you got to midnight, the more powers you had. And so the two that had the most powers were him and his, the actual him, which is Shiva, meaning that the boy who actually... Should have been his his. parents, and so they got switched at birth, and so they become. He was was rich boy, and he was actually the illegitimate son of a pauper. That's right, and a white man. Yep. So, whose mother actually died in childbirth, and then, so Shiva, the actual rich boy, gets raised by a man who's not his father. Yep, and the other boy then, without a mother becomes brutal and works for the Indira Gandhi campaign in the end to bring all the Midnight's children in to sterilize them. His superpower for some reason is the ability to kill people with his knees. Yeah. Yes. I think it has to do with some sort of Indian. Very much does. Gods. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So he goes on a lot of strange adventures. Has to do with Shiva. Yeah. Yes. As it turns out. As it turns there we out. go. Not so subtle naming. Um, he eventually, he's tied to the Muslim Hindu divide his family's Muslim. He ends up in Pakistan for a while, loses his memory, and works for the Pakistanis as a dog, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, that's <laughs> using, true. Using his nose to sniff out enemies and then ends up in the jungle where he has this weird revelation where all his memories come back to him. And then shortly after that is caught by this, and this makes an appearance later in the book, a devilish figure with green and black hair, which is a witch. And it's supposed to be Indira Gandhi because if you've ever seen her picture, She's famously has this streak of white hair and then half black, half white. So he's just play, he was playing off that, but mm-hmm. with this weird uh, green and black symbolism. And then they're all brought in and sterilized. Yeah. Yeah. And that's 
But you find out that actually he is going to raise a son who is the son of who? Is it Pavarti the witch? Pavarti the witch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Shiva's, right? That's right. It's Shiva's yeah. son. The book is full of parallels. Yeah. And... So it's not his boy, mm-hmm. but he still raises him as his own. And he was born on the exact midnight when this reign of terror ended. And so he has a hope that his son will also be connected. And his son is born with ears that are huge as opposed to a nose. Mm-hmm. And so they both together represent this Indian god together, Ganesh, mm-hmm. right? And his son will be then connected himself to Indian history. So that's that's the kind of overview of the book. And it sounds really weird when you just give an overview. That Maybe that's why we didn't do it. But Yeah, well, the book's not, the devil's in the details, folks. It's, yep. The book is all about the way that it's written and it's an it's an anthology of stories actually it's yes. it's there's every little moment is packed with puns and allusions and weird detours and, and they all manage to connect that's yeah. right so the and he connects them while dancing on his rooftop yep Brennan, how many middle. spittoons out of a thousand and one do you give to midnight's children as just a novel quality literature uh, a thousand and one as for whether or not someone should read it very Approach with maturity and caution. Approach with maturity and caution, yeah. Jake, same question. This is definitely one of the best books we've read. There you go. As far as quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's right up there. I don't understand how it's so good from a structural, yeah, poetical standpoint. This, Anna Karenina, Pride and Prejudice, and Bleak House. <laughs> yeah. And Ready Player One. <clears throat> and Ready Player One. So, yeah. First question, 999. Docking at two... Uh, spittoons, huh? So that's probably Two. fair. Yeah, it's got to be special to get that perfect. Yeah, that's score. right. And we got the one that's going to get that we thousand. Got Tolstoy yeah. left. You, know. you think um, Tolstoy will get a thousand? I'm joining Jake. <laughs> yeah, I'm Jake. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping he doesn't go on the spittoon system, but you never I know. know. You guys still haven't made it to the weird stuff that happens in like book four when Tolstoy started to go off the rails himself. Oh, I have. <laughs> Tolstoy I is fully it. off the rails. He's, it he's, gets, gets weird, doesn't yeah. it? But um, it's still five hundred for your second yeah. one. Yeah, no. Yeah, 500 spittoons on, in terms of moral. Should people read it? So it's like a coin toss. It's, yeah, it's on the short side of the coin toss. I'll give it a thousand and one. I'll, 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 I'll go with Brandon. I think it's a kind of a perfect book. Although you could argue that some of the vulgarity does in fact detract. So I'll split the difference. I'll, I'll give it a thousand there you go. spittoons. There you go. Um, average out to be a thousand. Average out. So I'll be ironic and give it a thousand spittoons. I don't know how many moral spittoons to give it. I think that he is writing about something real and his anger is well-founded. And there's a lot that you can learn from this book, but you do need to be mature and you do need to be careful. I'll give it a thousand and one. (laughs) A thousand and one spittoons. Every child should read this book. Yes. Sit around the fires this Thanksgiving and read this book out loud to your kids. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. At every awkward moment, stop and pause and really make sure that's sinking in. Mm-hmm. Get, s- suck lots of snot into your brain and then just connect with the kids telepathically and feed them the book that way. Connect with us telepathically and tell us how much you're loving it. Tell us how many spoons you'd give Midnight's Children and do it telepathically through your snot. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> let's do some donor shout outs. Yeah. Uh, donor shout out, of course, if you want to do that. What do you have to do, Jake, to get a donor shout out? Well, we give all of our listeners an opportunity to support this wonderful podcast. We certainly do. At patreon.com forward slash the booketing. And those patrons that support us at a $10 or above 
level, uh, they get shouted out and they get their own unique special nickname on our show. Yep. And uh, there are more rewards for higher levels, but you at least get that much. There are rewards for lower levels, actually. But if you want that donor shout out, 10 bucks a month. Yeah, everybody gets behind the scenes access to what we do and fun videos, little bonus episodes, cut scenes. Cut cut scenes? Cut. Been some cut scenes. I guess there haven't been actually been a lot. Scenes? Is that what you would call them? Uh, Cut segments. Things that are too racy (laughs) for the booking. Ooh, baby. You can or hear just too silly. You can hear me rap. Too can, silly for the booking. You can hear us figure out who the what the good marriages are in every book we've read. <laughs> that was a tangent that got cut. Um, <laughs> I thought you guys, that's all you did was be silly. I didn't think you ever had any serious conversations about books. Who's saying this now? <laughs> Some idiot who's never listened to our show. Yeah, no, we say serious <clears throat> things. Uh, speaking of serious things, let's do some donor shout outs. Um, Jake, you say their name. And then, Uh Brandon, you do some Indian music. Um, I don't know how to do that, Nathan. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This won't get racist real quick. All right, let's not be racist. Jake, you say their name, and then, Brandon, you say a word that you think of. Okay. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Toads. (laughs) The artful Anthony Dodger. The artful Anthony Dodger. Frog. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Stars. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Immortal Chelsea E. Rain. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jamal. Lily of the Valley. Mm. Lily of the Valley. Mm. <laughs> not that I care for this at all. And Ernesto the Lovebirds. <laughs> sashimi. Oh, sashimi. I, I don't know, Nathan. Words are hard. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Let's keep going. Sashimi? What is that? I don't know. It's a, it's a type of sushi. <laughs> oh, okay. And Ernesto yeah. the Lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Who? The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Tony Brent. <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Finally. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Uncork the body. <laughs> oh, no. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis and killing two, including two AF faces. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and C.S. Lewis, including two we have faces. All India Radio. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Jamila's Prime. face. Oh, sorry? Jamila's face. Oh, of course. Consul Prime Adam. Consul Prime Adam. <laughs> Can't say that. <laughs> COP. Uh, Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. Sunderbonds. Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Reinforces. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Unspeakable name. Maya! 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 Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. State Handicraft Emporia. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Methwald. (laughs) That's the guy, the white guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Ha! Ra! No, nah. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Change clothes. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Take regular baths. Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Go, Baba, or I'll send you to the washer, man. That's like advice. Lavender's (laughs) green, Dylan, Dylan. Lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. I love you, too. Dobies. Noah Constrictor. Noah Constrictor. Sighing softly. Mary Jeep. Mary Jeep. Electricity in the air. 
The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Melodrama. Six-pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Six-pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine, Catherine with a knack for laying down the attack. The His eyes were too blue. Anthony who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Did you say Anthony? Yes. Anthony who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Kashmiri blue. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Changeling blue. Rachel. Rachel. Blue with the wave Rachel. of unspilled tears. Well, Leopard Tank Thomas. <laughs> well, what? Leopard Tank Thomas. Leopard Tank? Yeah, Leopard Tank Thomas. You, know, you don't remember Lake of Leopard, Leopard Tank, Tank Thomas? Thomas? No. Leopard Tank Thomas. He's been around for a few episodes. Blue, He's like a blink. leprechaun, but also Thomas the Tank. Is that what we got? We had, his original name was Thomas the Tank Engine, and then we looked up, I think you were gone for this particular donor shout out. You had to leave early or something. We looked up the coolest tank. It's, leopard, and tank. it's a leopard, it's a leopard tank. tank. Yeah. Okay. Leopard tank Thomas. Uh, Midnight Ninja Ellen. Midnight Ninja Ellen. When I was fed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Queen Congetta. Queen Congetta. Channel swimmer. And I want to welcome Jedediah. 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 Which to me sounds, you, you got to put old in front of Jedediah. Old Jedediah. Return but I, of the Jedediah. Oh, that's ooh, pretty good. Return of the Jedediah is not bad. The Jedediah strikes back. The Jedediah <laughs> strikes back. <laughs> Be the Empire idiot. The last Jedediah. <laughs> yeah, the yeah last. you could. <laughs> yo, Attack of the Jedediah. <laughs> that's right. I, the I've Phantom been invited Jedediah. back to your nerdy Star Wars podcast. <laughs> you know, sorry, and you suck. Yeah, afraid I'll like... Give you guys wedgies or something? <laughs> Clone no. Jedediah. Um, you come to our Star Wars podcast, we'll beat you up and steal your lunch money. All right. Yeah. Right out by the flagpole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What flagpole? You, you know the flagpole? No. <laughs> Is there one here? Yeah, I, I like Return of the Jedediah. Let's call him Return of the Jedediah. Return of the Jedediah. Return of the Jedediah, but pushpa. That's it. There you go. Thanks, donors. Next week, uh, we'll... Be venturing back into the magical land of Narnia. Yay! Yay! Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, Booketing today, Britain... By everybody, produced by everybody. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support us. Thanks, folks. Bye. Bye.